remember that if we do give nasal sprays, we should teach our patients how to use them correctly because I don't know if you're using that one correctly. <laughs> and that's why the taste is so bad. Wait, you're supposed to snort as hard as you can when you use it, right? <laughs> Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matthew. How are you doing today? Hi, Stuart. I, I was ready for it. You didn't surprise me today with that one. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. I'm, I'll change it up next time. And we should probably tell the audience this is the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Frank Watto here with That's my right. co hosts, Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham and Dr. That's still Paul, me. And Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Hey, Nelson. Not Stuart. Yeah, not Stuart. Uh, is that what you want us to call you tonight? Not Stuart? I feel like it's implied. <laughs> <laughs> well, as always, uh, at least recently, Stuart, would you like to read us some listener feedback? Absolutely. I think it'd be just a pleasure for me to do that on air. So we have this listener feedback from, uh, looks like one of our nurse practitioner listeners. Not that that matters too much. It says, hello, just want to let you guys know how much I have been enjoying your podcast. I am a new advanced practice nurse practitioner in internal medicine. Ooh, I need that one. And just find every topic extremely relevant relevant, and so helpful. I love how you have the specialists break down the, the diseases and disorders and give us their initial approach and when to intervene for further follow-ups. Thank you so much for having this resource available for us. And you want to give a uh, name withheld. Thank you. Thank you, Advanced Practice Nurse Practitioner. We appreciate that you are <laughs> listening right. to our show. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gabriella. It's very nice of you. <laughs> okay, name not withheld. Uh, that's great. I, I appreciate you doing that, Stuart. And I did want to read an announcement, and we, we have announced this at this point on several shows, but just reminding the audience that we are looking for correspondence for the Curbsiders we already have, uh, geez, must be like 10 applications. So we will be going through those and kind of reaching out to you all. Um, we're going to take applications until the 15th of September. But what is it if you haven't heard the announcement before? Basically, it means we're looking for people to get involved with the production of the show, uh, possibly appear on air. And you can kind of pitch us, send us a half page. It can be an email how you want to be involved with the show, why you want to be involved with the show, and send us your CV. We'll consider you to become a Curbsiders correspondent. And like I said, we've already had several applications. And the other recent announcement, we because of a lot of requests from listeners, we're now going to be sending everyone on our mailing list a PDF copy of the show notes each Monday morning. So you'll Monday morning in your inbox, you will have the show notes to go along with a new episode that is something that uh, I, I think would be valuable to you and uh, a good teaching tool. So keep an eye out for that. And at this point, I think we should go to Paul for his pick of the week. Don't forget the music. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, just let it breathe. That's kind of the, the curbsiders <laughs> way. <laughs> so I was thinking about it and I realized that with all the movies that I recommend, I don't know that I've recommended anything that's been particularly family friendly. Um, 
I can't think of a single one actually. And that one I time you you recommended Homeward Bound. You don't remember? No, oh, sure. It was actually yeah, Mo- but... Moana. You recommended recommended uh, Moana. Did I recommend once. Moana? You did. You did. Oh, I think you talked. You talked about Moana, but then you said that's not my recommendation. And you, <laughs> right. And, and you, then I probably went on to recommend you, a Lars von Trier movie or something. <laughs> <laughs> I was quite surprised. In any case, yeah, I decided I didn't care, and I'm going to recommend uh, a 2014 Australian horror movie instead. Um, <laughs> Thanks. So, <laughs> no problem. Uh, and it's it's gotten some press. I honestly, actually, I'd be surprised if I didn't recommend this before. So, if this is a second time, again, I don't care. But I'm going to recommend the 2014 movie, The Babadook. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard any press about it. It's written and directed by Jennifer Kent, and this is her directorial debut. It's about um, a widow who finds a mysterious pop-up book, or actually I guess her son does, who asks her to read it to him, and then the creature that is in the book sort of manifests itself and begins to kind of terrorize her. And it's it works on a lot of levels. It's it's a neat movie because it tends to use a lot of practical effects. It is literally one of the scariest things I think I've seen in the past 10 years. And then it also, there's a lot of uh, metaphorical and sort of subtext that actually makes it really intelligent and kind of moving too. So if... If you're a fan of horror movie genre, I think uh, it's probably one of the most effective horror movies I've seen in quite some time and has a lot of intelligence and heart behind it, too. So that would be the 2014 film of The Babadook. And apparently in late 2016, it was miscategorized as an LGBT movie in Netflix. <laughs> and it has a, a cult following with that, uh, with that group. Interesting. It's, no, I don't think it's a cult following so much. It was almost made an ironic icon um, ah, within okay. that community, and it, which is also delightful considering the source material. So I... I <laughs> It does not change my recommendation in any way. No, I, I wouldn't expect it to. That is uh, just fascinating all around. And uh, that movie actually looks a little too scary for me, Paul. I've, I've said I'm an emotional wimp. I'm also kind of a wimp when it comes <laughs> to uh, like spooky horror movies. I just don't. Yeah. I, in that I, case, I rescind it. And Mylon Otis, The Journey Home, a delightful <laughs> 2011 movie about a puppy and a kitty. <laughs> and is, is, that, is, that, is this the Babadook here? all right i'll give my pick of the week so we can actually get on to the the show my my pick of the week is this was a show is a is a book called the alchemist which is written by paulo coelho i'm probably way mispronouncing that name but i don't care i'm glad you chose this one (laughs) and uh it's a popular book i'm sure people have heard of it but I, i think it's worth a read you can probably read it in about two hours and it's a it's kind of a book that's meant to just inspire you to do things outside of your comfort zone and to take risks so that you don't you know reg- have regrets when you're older in life the the main character of the book keeps meeting people that talk about things they could have done if only they had taken this risk so he just keeps taking risks and risks and has this incredible adventure it's a little bit cheesy, but I have to say it it has worked. And uh, mm. definitely, if you're looking for some inspiration to change things up in your life, that I would recommend it. Excellent. So, so Paul, have you ever wondered what you look like if you were if you were older? Or maybe you, Matt, have you ever wondered what you'd look like if you were older? <laughs> I am older. I'm not sure I understand the question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I let's. I've got I've got the app for you. Have you ever heard of Face App before? No, no. So take a look at this. Can you can you see can you see me? Oh That's me. That's me. If I'm old, you see that? It's amazing, isn't it? I look love at me it. now. Yeah. Another oh, yeah. another smashing and incredibly helpful recommendation by Stuart yeah. Kent Brigham. You know, really what's high yield for the podcasting audio audience. They really <laughs> they are probably getting a charge out of this. <laughs> All right. 
So we, we should move on to the main topic here. This episode, the idea for this episode, what we're, tonight we're going to be talking about respiratory tract infections, specifically upper respiratory tract infections, and kind of how they relate to proper antibiotic use or antibiotic underuse as is a term that it sounds like Dr. Centaur is coining on this one. We had two guests. Both are returning guests to the show. Our first guest, Dr. Alexandra Lane, is an assistant professor of medicine at Cooper University where she is also an APD and director of the resident clinic for the internal medicine residency program at Cooper University Hospital. We asked her to come on the show to help me interview Dr. Centaur because Stuart and Paul weren't available and also to provide some of her insights and how she practices in clinic when seeing patients with upper respiratory infections. Of course, our other guest, Dr. Robert Centaur, he, until very recently, was the Associate Dean for the Huntsville Regional Medical Center at the University of Alabama in Birmingham, and now is semi-retired, but he is a professor of medicine in the Division of General Internal Medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He is well known for having developed the Centaur criteria for pharyngitis, which we will go through on the show. We asked him on because he's been studying upper respiratory infections, specifically pharyngitis, for a very long time now and had a lot of great insights to give us, especially about his approach to prescribing antibiotics and to physical exam. We have some great pearls on physical exam in this one. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this discussion with Dr. Alexandra Lane and Dr. Robert Centaur. I hear it's amazing. And Mary, Mary, take it away. That's right. I hope that was less than 16 bars so we don't get sued. (laughs) (laughs) I think it probably was. It it was. I did it on purpose. (laughs) Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is your host, Dr. Matthew Watto. Unfortunately, without Stuart and Paul, but I do have two great guests today, Dr. Robert Centaur from the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Hi, Dr. Centaur. Hello, Matt. And I have with me Dr. Alexandra Lane from Cooper University Hospital in Camden. Hi, Dr. Lane. Hi, Dr. Watto. Actually, I sh- we should probably set this up. For this, the purposes of this podcast, you've given me permission to call refer to you as Bob instead of Dr. Centaur and Alex instead of Dr. Lane, and that's that's for the audience. Anyway, I'd like to start off by, since you've both been on the show, probably people have heard heard about you, but I think it would still be helpful if you kind of just gave us a one-liner about yourself to kind of let the audience know who you are. So, Bob, can you give us a one-liner about yourself? Uh, I'm a semi-retired uh, professor of medicine, uh, general internist who focuses on inpatient ward attending as my uh, favorite academic pursuit. I also studied sore throats once in my career for <laughs> yeah. 35 years. Yes, uh, I believe people might have heard about that. A- Alex, how about you? How about a one-liner? I'm also a general internist uh, with a focus on super utilizers and complex care. And uh, I like to say that I'm married to an orthopod, but don't hold it against me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we won't. We won't. 
And at this point, uh, I would like to ask you, since we've already had you on the show before, your returning guests, I'd like to get a, a pick of the week from each of you. So this could be a book, an app, a website, something that you think would either be good for the audience, either professionally or just personally for their own wellness. And Bob, let's start with you. Any mystery book by Michael Connolly. Michael Connolly has written over 20 mysteries. Many of his books are about Harry Bosch. There's actually an Amazon Prime series that has three seasons worth of Harry Bosch. I particularly like him because they're, most of his books are police procedurals. And in many ways, they're similar to the diagnostic process. His detectives are bulldogs and don't give up and don't let all of the biases and heuristics stand in their way because they know that they don't have all the answers yet and they need more data and I think that's the attitude we need as physicians. Yes, and I, I hadn't really thought of reading mysteries as a almost like a form of professional development, but that's actually very interesting. And I did, uh, I think I had sent you a message or liked it on Twitter that your recent article that you had written about uh, being a diagnostician and kind of uh, being proud to call yourself a diagnostician. And I think that's something that, that we probably need to strive for more. And we, there's so much data out there now that we can probably become better at this if we learn how to kind of utilize these new technologies to to uh, make the data work for us. Well, that particular uh, blog post is going to be republished on Kevin MD, I believe, tomorrow. Oh, that's great. So we'll we'll definitely link to that in the show notes for this. I, I think this this episode will be out next week or the week after. So that, that might be, have uh, already posted at the time that this comes out. Okay, and Alex, how about you? What what do you have for a pick of the week? This is not having to do with medicine, but I've been reading a book about parenting called How to Talk So Your Kids Will Listen and Listen So Your Kids Will Talk. And actually, it's extremely appropriate for talking to patients as well. Yeah. Um, it's, <laughs> it's a lot about acknowledging feelings, naming feelings, and uh, validating them before telling people or your children why they can't do something. And I think it's very appropriate. So if you have children or not and have, want a new technique for having to talk to them, I highly recommend this book. I I think that I really need to read this because uh, <laughs> not so much my daughter who doesn't talk much yet, but the three boys, uh, they really give give me a hard time. So my wife's like, you're always reading all these books, but you never read any parenting books. So maybe maybe I'll have to read this one. It sounds sounds appropriate. Well, we have we have a lot to talk about on this topic of upper respiratory tract infections. So I, I think we should move on. But thank you for the great recommendations and. As always, uh, I would like to just remind that we're going to, I think for this topic, because it is a pretty basic topic, but we'll still try to explain everything, not assume that the listeners know everything we do about the topic uh, s since we've read about it to, to prep for this and also since our listeners range from medical students all the way up through attending physicians, subspecialists. And we'll start with a case from Cashlack Memorial Hospital, a 39-year-old female with obesity, hypertension. She has a diagnosis of fibromyalgia. She's coming in with three days of chills, subjective fevers, sinus pressure and congestion, post-nasal drip and cough with some green-yellow mucus. She says, I get this every year. It only goes away with antibiotics. They usually give me a Z-Pack. This is the case you're left with. I'm sure everybody has seen a case like this before. 
Bob, I wanted to throw the question to you first. When you start to classify an infection like this or, or symptoms like this, how do you like to think about it? The biggest thing that I worry about with everything we're going to talk about today is how to make certain that we don't miss uh, the serious infection. So I want that to be my theme for the day is what are the clues to a serious infection? And I'm going to ask a follow-up question, and that is, what do you mean by chills? And I, I do this on rounds all the time, so I'm picking on you, Matt. Okay. Uh, yeah. There's chills, and then there's rigors. Not rigors. She just says, okay. yeah, I felt like I had to uh, add an extra blanket or, or just drink a cup of warm, warm tea because I, I felt a little cold, colder than usual. So making that distinction is very valuable to me. Chills don't mean anything to me if they're not rigors. But if they're rigors, then I'm admitting them to the hospital. And do you, uh, you give them Demerol for those rigors or Meperidine? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, um, I get blood cultures for those rigors. And I'll start them on antibiotics. The case that you present is one of the most confusing uh, presentations for primary care physicians and patients because the patients are convinced it's going to turn into bad sinusitis. And of, I reviewed the, the ACP best practice paper on upper respiratory tract infections, and the way they describe it, uh, this was actually their, the best single best practice they had. And what they say is you're not in trouble until you have had symptoms for more than seven days and they're getting worse. They talk about something called double sickening. That's where you have your viral symptoms, you seem to get better, and then you get a lot worse. If you have a very high fever, and that would be above 103, 104, maybe purulent nasal discharge, although that's really hard to tell and facial pain for more than three days. So if you have really bad discharge and facial pain or high fevers, then I would be worried. Other than that, I don't think I'd give antibiotics. I certainly wouldn't give a Z-Pak. <laughs> I, I really, really dislike Z-Packs. It, it has such a cool name. Yeah. But it really doesn't cover what we need to cover here if we needed to cover something. But I don't think what you described... Uh, sounds like a significant bacterial infection. So I would wait. And I'd wait and give the patient advice that if a fever develops or rigors develop or facial pain develops to come back and then we can start the antibiotics. But giving her antibiotics just puts her at risk for diarrhea and other complications. There are several things you said that I'd like to swing back to. The the sputum color or the 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 color of the nasal purulence, that, that's something that I think people point to. They think green and yellow means bacterial infection. They think green and yellow means they need antibiotics. That's something that I think we need to dispel. There's, there's not evidence that that's the case, and any viral infection can cause the same. At least that's my understanding. Right. The, the uh, ACP paper uh, in the annals suggests that if you have very purulent-looking nasal discharge for more than three days, then it might be worthwhile to give antibiotics. Right. But just having it for one day, uh, no. 
And I think that was also if if they're also having high fevers with the discharge right. and pain. So right. it has to be kind of a, a, a big constellation of symptoms. Right. Alex, anything there from there that you wanted to comment on before I move on to the next? Yeah, I mean, I I think that uh, something else that kind of struck me is just talking to the patient, which we often overlook as a key part of our therapeutic plan. So, you know, setting expectation management for the patient in terms of here are the things you should be thinking about. Here's why I don't think it's bacterial and what that would look like. Because I think when our patients get frustrated is when we don't give them those expectations or if we just are dismissive of what, you know, their past experiences have been. The CDC, something that I came across as I was reviewing the literature for this talk, the CDC has actually a prescription that you can print out and give to patients. And it it, it says it has the, the most common URIs at the top. You can check off which one you think they have. You can check off their symptoms and write next to it the name of the medication that you're prescribing for each symptom. And there there's also some talk about just sort of telling by calling it a this is a viral infection or this is a a chest cold things like that that patients will tend to be more okay with you not giving them antibiotics one of the things that i i tend to do when i see somebody coming in with this complaint is try to partner with them right away say oh my goodness this, i hate when i have this viral infection because it's going to take a few days before you start to feel better and i know how sick you must feel you know and really just prime them to part to be your partner um, that you're acknowledging that they are sick but that doesn't mean that they need antibiotics Bob, you were kind of hinting at you want to avoid antibiotic underuse, if we can coin a term here. And uh, now, so which which things uh, do we need to look out for that could that could be causing uh, the need for antimicrobial therapy? What are some of the conditions that we need to think about, and how can we go about kind of figuring out if that's what this is? In the case that you presented, if I remember right, there was uh, some cough. Uh, in addition to this, and so I would listen to the lungs. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot therapeutic about actually taking out your stethoscope and touching the patient with the stethoscope, uh, and I'd also tap on the sinuses, make sure they're not tender. That will help help our doctor-patient relationship and and help us say, good news. I don't think this is a serious bacterial infection. But I'd be listening for two things. I'd be listening for wheezing because some people who get these upper respiratory tract infections get uh, a transient uh, uh, asthma-like syndrome, which is not going to cause me to give antibiotics, but might uh, lead me to give steroids to make them feel better if they're really having a lot of problem with cough. And I, and I never know whether cough is asthma. I might even check a peak flow. When I used to do outpatient medicine, uh, I always had a peak flow meter available to just to check in situations like this whether or not the patient really is having trouble with reversible obstruction. The other thing is I'd be listening for anything that would make me worry about the possibility of pneumonia because just because they start out with what seems like a viral URI doesn't mean they don't have pneumonia. Now, the history really helped a lot because there weren't rigors, there weren't high-grade fevers, there weren't uh, wasn't a story of night sweats, and it wasn't talking about really purulent coughing. It was rather uh, nasal discharge. So, 
But I always worry about, I don't want to miss pneumonia because I'd re- I want to treat that at the right time, but I don't want to give antibiotics if they don't need it. I just need to check off those boxes. I just want to make sure uh, about the peak flow. I, I know it's a, a relatively basic test, but it's it's a it's a test where the patient can they they have this almost looks like a kazoo. They blow into it, and they basically uh, you can based on their I believe it's age and their height. It it kind of gives you what their expected peak flow would be. And for patients with asthma, they might even know what their baseline peak flow is. Right. Okay. And then the other thing mentioning pneumonia, there were some, uh, in, in the ACP paper. And then in one other paper I found, they were mentioning some clinical symptoms that really kind of increase your chances of this being a pneumonia. And most of them are pretty intuitive. So tachycardia, heart rate over a hundred respiratory rate, greater than 24 fever, greater than 38 degrees Celsius, which is 100.4 Fahrenheit or, uh, abnormal findings on the chest exam, kind of the, the things that we were just talking about. So basically extra sounds like, uh, crackles, uh, on, on the chest exam. And did you, did you see anything, uh, Alex or Bob went in your reading about this CRP or procalcitonin potentially being used for, for this? And is this something that you've heard of being done for, we're talking outpatients, ambulatory patients here? So we definitely don't use it. I mean, I think with, um, I think it's an interesting idea. And maybe uh, when we have the technology to do point of care testing uh, for blood work, potentially, it might be useful. But as things stand for now, I, you know, I'm not going to ask my patient who is already not feeling good now to go to their lab and, you know, sit there and wait and then get a blood draw and then decide they're not going to want to do that. So I think the theory of it is interesting. I think the practicality as of right now is not that conducive to the outpatient practice. Right. I just like to reinforce, um, and I was talking to some of my colleagues today, history and physical really works here. And the only time that I really want to go to diagnostic testing is if the history or the physical says, hey, I really might be dealing with something. The ACP paper, which they wrote with the CDC, left out rigors and night sweats, but I would add rigors and night sweats. Those are red flags to me. Uh, And so when that happens, I have to start thinking that there's significant bacterial infection. Now, you can get that with influenza. Mm-hmm. And if it's influenza season, you might need to test for influenza if you don't think it's a bacterial infection. But once you get those rigors and night sweats, and I once had had uh, pneumococcal pneumonia, and I had a rigor, and I had a night sweat that soaked the mattress, and it's not subtle. <laughs> and so if somebody has those symptoms, I think it's time to go ahead and just presume that there's bacteremia and admit them. You don't need uh, you don't need a, a fancy test uh, to figure that out. History and physical really is useful in everything we're talking about today. And the there were two papers that I had seen with the CRP procalcitonin, CRP being for inflammation, procalcitonin being for uh, more specific for bacterial infection, and it really didn't seem like it added much. To, to kind of doing those six clinical things that we talked about. And in addition to the, the chills or rigors, I, I don't think it's going to add a lot. So you're, you're right on there. And those will be linked to in the show notes. One was from BMJ in 2013. And uh, I can't remember offhand where the other one was from, but it'll be in the show notes if you care to delve into that. Alex, did you have a, a follow-up there? Yeah, I just also wanted to um, ask Bob a question about this 
in this patient scenario, what would be your um, kind of heuristic if, if this was a more elderly patient or somebody who had you know multiple comorbidities such as heart failure or asthma or the typical I think at least for our at least for the residents and students I work for they tend to see these very complex patients so not a baseline healthy patient I want to know how the patient's done over the last two or three days um, are they really are they bed bound now and they weren't bed bound? Has, has there been a change? As patients get older, the chance that fever helps you decreases somewhat. Um, but if they're coughing a lot, if I hear anything on the exam, I'd probably be a little bit quicker to get a chest x-ray uh, in these older patients. And the vital signs can help also. Uh, you know, are, are, Have they become hypotensive? Uh, we already talked about both tachypnea and tachycardia. Uh, I like to look for uh, accessory muscle use. It's really very useful if you know the patient and you've been doing it. I got a tip when I was uh, a resident in 1975. Uh, I was a resident a long time ago. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite attendings, uh, Dr. Orrin Murin, who's this wonderful four foot ten pulmonologist from Istanbul. <laughs> Uh, I was with him in the ICU, and he taught me to feel the scalene muscle as the earliest sign of accessory muscle use. Um, try, try it uh, yourself. And uh, when I sometimes have a hard time seeing accessory muscle use until I feel it. And so what I do is always put my hand on their neck, which is a comforting thing to the patient anyway, put my thumb on the scalene muscle. If I feel it contracting, then I know they're really working hard to breathe. Then I really pay attention to kidney. To, to kidney. Usually the vital signs that are written down don't help me. I would actually have to observe the tachypnea myself. Tachycardia is a lot easier. Everybody gets the pulse right. But, but those <laughs> things would, would be clues to me in an elderly person, perhaps even more than fever. And I had a follow-up comment here because the, the, the guidelines – the ACP paper that that we're referring to that was for healthy adults, people that don't have chronic respiratory disease or even chronic renal disease. So you, so you really have to say these are more your healthy ambulatory patients, not your sicker older patients, which is kind of a a different talk uh, than for the most part than this one. So those should be red flags where you're going to have to have a higher index of suspicion. I did want to say uh, with the uh, scalene muscle, just to refresh me where that is, is that kind of between the heads of the SCM uh, it, or the sternocleidomastoid where it attaches to the front of the neck? Yeah, it's it's uh, just posterior to the sternocleidomastoid. Okay. That's cool. I, I can't wait to do that and look awesome on rounds. <laughs> I've been teaching it to students and residents and everybody loves it because once you feel it, then you can look and you can see the accessory muscle use and and... I'm not as good at seeing it as I'm until after I've felt it. Well, I think we've kind of gone through bronchitis pretty well here. And just to recap. I have one addition. Oh, yeah. Please, please do. Okay. Bronchitis in COPD patients is a different disease. Whereas I usually don't want to give antibiotics for bronchitis because there's no evidence that it would help a healthy person. People who have COPD, who have increased sputum, purulent sputum, increased shortness of breath, any two of those three uh, do deserve antibiotics. And if, if a patient has asthma and they're wheezing more, would you go down the route of kind of just a normal asthma therapy, steroids and all? 
Yes. Okay. The the symptomatic care for these patients, I mean, for all upper respiratory infections, we'll kind of move into that at the end, but there's not a lot of great evidence for any of it, um, especially for bronchitis. So uh, we'll, we'll kind of save that for the end, but let's move on to pharyngitis because I think that's one of the other ones that we'll probably spend a little bit of time on here. With this lady, how can we convince her she doesn't have strep throat? Let's just say she's like, I work at a daycare and a lot of the kids have had strep. Everyone else is on antibiotics. I've heard of this thing called the Centaur criteria. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so first of all, it's more than just group A strep, and we'll get into that in a second. Certainly, if you've been exposed, that decre- that increases our pretest probability. So all all the percentages that we know about change because you've been exposed. The next thing is a simple exam. Okay. Uh, she doesn't have a fever. She does have a cough. I'm going to look in her throat. And if I don't see exudates and I don't feel adenopathy, I can reassure she doesn't have, she almost certainly doesn't have strep. And there is no guideline that would recommend that you even do a test. Let me tell you what drives me crazy. (laughs) Almost every urgent care in this country when someone comes in with a sore throat, they do a strep test before anybody examines the patient. And that is bad medicine. If you can, you can exclude testing in patients by using the criteria. And let me just repeat the criteria in case nobody's ever heard of them. <laughs> uh, a history of fever. And in our study, that trumped a little bit the actual temperature in the emergency department. Because by the time they came to the emergency department, they took an Advil or an aspirin, which could lower their fever. Uh, the lack of a cough, tender anterior cervical adenopathy, and tonsillar exudates. The more of those you have, the more likely you are to have bacterial pharyngitis. And that's something new just in the last five years because it could be group A, it could be group C, or it could be fusobacterium. If, if you don't have any of those things or you only have one of those things, every single guideline in the world, and there are over 12 guidelines for pharyngitis, every single one says reassure them and tell them to come back only if they develop a fever or, or worse symptoms. And so the, what urgent care is doing by doing strep tests is they end up giving antibiotics to people who don't even have strep infections or just carriers. Uh, so don't do a strep test unless you decide you really, really want to test someone who looks like they have strep. Then we get into the debate. The debate is, let's, let's say a patient comes in, uh, the next patient who comes into your office ha- does have exudates and does have anterior cervical adenopathy, has no cough, and has a temperature of 102 right there in, in your office. And they do a strep test, and it's negative. What do you do then? There are people who say, let's do nothing. Just reassure them it's just a viral infection. Those people actually are wrong. It's not just a viral infection. 70% of those people have some bacteria and it might be Fusobacterium necrophorum, which is a, a gram-negative anaerobe. It could be Group C or Group G, uh, which uh, acts exactly like Group A, including increasing ASO titers and most likely causing rheumatic fever. 
but the the strep test only tests group A. It doesn't test group C or group G. And they all look alike clinically. All three of those look alike clinically. So I would empirically treat them. Um, there are other people who think I'm an idiot <laughs> and say, well, you're just giving antibiotics and there's no proven benefit. Well, there's no proven harm other than 10% of the people you see with sore throats are going are gonna to have a score of four. About 25% are going to have a score of three. So I'm talking about 35% of the people who come in that I would empirically give antibiotics to, and I wouldn't even test the rest of them. Mm-hmm. But And if I did it, I would probably put them on either penicillin or amoxicillin unless they're allergic. Depending upon how sick they are, I would never use azithromycin in adults because Fusobacterium is resistant to azithromycin. And uh, in all of our research about uh, Lemaire syndrome, which is the, com- the suppurative complication of pharyngitis, uh, azithromycin is often given empirically and it doesn't stop the development of, of Lemaire's. But even if you decide not to treat them, then you have to tell them what are the danger signs. The big problem here, now we're very specifically talking about adolescents and young adults, probably ages 15 to 30. This does not apply to children. And we're going to define children as before puberty. I'm not a pediatrician. Children either have group A or they don't. They don't get group C and they don't get fusobacterium. Hmm. And so all of that, those recommendations are perfectly fine for children. But once they get up into, into our age group that, that, that we take care of, it's a lot more complicated for some reason. And so if we decide not to treat them, if, if you're, if you're uh, an antibiotic nihilist and you just don't want to give antibiotics to anybody who's suffering with a sore throat, and, and obviously I'm using hyperbole here, <laughs> um, then at least warn them of the warning signs. The warning signs, again, are rigors. Uh, over 90% of people have, who get Lemaire syndrome have rigors as their, one of their initial manifestations. Again, this double sickening that we mentioned before for sinusitis, where they seem to be getting a little bit better and then they get a lot worse, that's really bad with, with pharyngitis. Unilateral neck swelling could either be a peritonsal abscess or it could be Lemaire's. Uh, and so all of those things are major warning signs that you better do something. And let me just define Lemaire's in case people haven't heard about it. I know I taught you about this once, Matt. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, so you start out with pharyngitis, and then the bacteria spreads into the internal jugular vein. You get a separative internal jugular vein, thrombophlebitis, that throws off emboli. So it's like right-sided endocarditis. You get pulmonary emboli, you can get brain emboli, you can get joint emboli. And with Without early diagnosis and treatment, you can die or at least have a very complicated ICU course. So that's why I get all excited. And I apologize for the soliloquy. I, I like it. I did see that there was some difference in the, the first-line antibiotic recommendation. Is it pretty much penicillin, amoxicillin? Can you, can you comment on that just a little bit? I haven't seen any evidence that we need amoxicillin clavulonic acid. I haven't seen any evidence. The IDSA guideline, and they have pretty good data, at least on group A strep, 
uh, would be the equivalent of 875 milligrams of amoxicillin once a day. Now, that's one of the nice things about the IDSA guideline is they point out that for pharyngitis, you can get a good result with once a day antibiotics if you use amoxicillin. Can't do that with penicillin. Mm-hmm. The, they, there are also studies that suggest first-line uh, cephalosporins might even be better, or second-generation cephalosporins might even be better than penicillins. But now we're really talking about coin tosses. So I would stick there for right now. If they're really, really sick and they can't take penicillin and you're really worried about them, then I would go to clindamycin, understanding that there is some risk of diarrhea with clindamycin, but I'm so I'm probably overly worried about fusobacterium. And I understand that because I've been studying it. There was a an article that that I had gotten a question about on Facebook. This this recent study that appeared in JAMA using dexamethasone to try to shorten the duration of pharyngitis, and they looked at twenty four hours. There was no difference. They looked at forty eight hours. There was about an eight uh, percent decrease versus the control group. And what what did you think about that versus the placebo group? Rather, it was a placebo controlled trial. Yeah, there's a series of articles that have been written, and this is uh, one of the uh, fads in urgent care and emergency departments is to give steroids uh, for pharyngitis. Um, it, the, I was asked to write uh, a commentary on an article back in 2010 on this subject. It might have a slight improvement. No, notice that the number needed to treat here is about 12. You have to treat 12 people to have one person get better one day faster. Now, the question is, could steroids mask worsening infection like a peritonsal abscess or Lemaire syndrome? They didn't study nearly enough patients to figure out whether there are any bad side effects because there were only like four or 500 patients in the study. And I just don't like the idea of giving steroids unless they have a really good indication. Yeah, and the other thing I noticed, so I think there was like two patients in the treatment arm and three patients in the placebo that had a bad complication, like a peritonsillar abscess, and then they didn't really say by by getting better at 48 hours how long the rest of the patients took to get better. Was it like the next day? And every, I think people had symptoms for like three or four days to start at the time of treatment, so then that means around day five, they got better if they got steroids, but the natural history of pharyngitis, isn't it you get better within a week for the most part? Yeah, I always say three to five days. You you should be better in three to five days most of the time. Yeah, so it's just a hard, because like if if the patients are coming in on day three or four, they might already be kind of on the mend and then you give them steroids. So I, I feel like it was just hard to really tell and it was a small number, so... But uh, hopefully that answers the question for our listeners. Uh, Bob is not a fan of the steroids for pharyngitis. <laughs> well, it's also interesting just to think like that you wrote a commentary about this, you know, seven years ago, and we're still doing another research about it, potentially unnecessarily. But <laughs> I just that because we're so desperate to try to give people something that they want to treat these symptoms. Yeah, Alex, this, you bring up a really good point. Like, um, I mean, when you you mentioned earlier, you were commiserating with patients about feeling sick. I mean, I've I got I hadn't been sick for a long time, and then having the kids, I got sick a couple times in the past few years, and you do feel pretty bad compared to usual. Yeah. <laughs> 
uh, yeah, so it's probably good for, for, uh, doctors to get sick once in a while to remember what it feels like to be these patients that are just, they just want something. But unfortunately, uh, Alex, you were mentioning to me in pre pre-recording time is really the biggest, uh, is the biggest thing they need. And I, I pretty much agree. And fluids. And fluids. <laughs> That's yeah. the only evidence, right? Time and fluids. I, I'm a, I'm a fan of non-steroidals for the throat pain. Any specific, any specific non-steroidals or can you, can, what, what do you tell patients to take? Generic ibuprofen, two tablets as, you know, maybe every four or six hours if they're, if they're still hurting, but don't take it unless you have symptoms. Very good. Bob or Alex, with this patient, is there any other condition that we're, that we're missing that we want to kind of rule out before we chalk this up to just being a, a simple viral infection? Alex, anything else that jumps out at you from the history here? So I think for any of the of these viral URIs, I try to focus on the symptom that's bothering the patient the most and try to give them symptom relief for that. So, um, you know, I completely agree with Bob for sore throat, giving NSAIDs for fever, if that's really bothering them, giving a Tylenol or also NSAIDs if, if they prefer Um for, you know, there, I think there's no good evidence. I mean, let's just actually put that out there first. Like there's really no good evidence for symptom relief, um, for these viral URI symptoms, which is unfortunate, but kind of can work to your advantage because you can do what you think the patient will respond to the best. I do almost always give something for the patient's partnership for the patient relationship partnership whatever you may call it because I, I these patients are suffering and so I do try to give them something or at least some expectation of what they can expect um, so I I typically do that I try the one thing I don't really do is flow knees for um, for uh, sinus symptoms because I think sometimes just having that steroid um, isn't necessarily good for the patients, although there's not real data about that either. It's just my personal preference. For me, I'm, I'm more likely to use Flonase if I'm not if I'm not sure by the history and exam if this is allergic or infectious right. because in that situation, I think there's a relatively low risk of harm and I'll, I'll probably give them the saline, the ocean nasal spray to kind of rinse things out and then tell them to use the nasal steroid after that, thinking that if they kind of rinse the sinuses first, it, there should be relatively clean mucosa to, to be able to absorb the medication there. And when I was, I, I was looking through articles and Cochrane reviews, trying to find something that had good evidence for symptomatic management for upper respiratory infections. And for the most part, there was this kind of level two evidence, meaning some trials may have shown a slight benefit. Some, some trials had a negative effect. So Alex, your approach is, is pretty much right on the, um, the things that you do want to, I, I think, think about if, if someone has a, a, an infectious cause of their upper respiratory symptoms, you probably are not going to help them by giving them a non sedating antihistamine. And the, the reasoning for that was written in this paper. Uh, it was from the New England Journal in 2000 and by Irwin et al. And basically they were saying that the non sedating, uh, they, they don't really alleviate coughs 
in patients that just end up having a common cold, probably because they don't have any anticholinergic activity, and the common cold is not caused by histamine. So if someone has an allergic cause, you can use loratadine, you can use fexofenadine, but those because those medications are more targeted and you and they don't have the anticholinergic effects that a first generation like diphenhydramine or Benadryl would. Um, that the Benadryl is going to be more beneficial potentially for someone with a an infectious cause, and a number of the papers and the, the chest guidelines actually recommended this combination of a sedating antihistamine and an and a decongestant oral decongestant for kind of controlling the cough in someone that has the common cold. So that's that's something that you can consider. But if you're treating 70-year-olds uh, or above, a, a lot of people are going to be on medications and they're not going to tolerate it that well. I love what you just said about the sedating antihistamines. Uh, my own personal experience is that if the uh, viral infection is interfering with my sleep, they're really good to allow me to get a good night's <laughs> sleep. And, and you always feel better if you get a good night's sleep. And I've known that since I was an intern. Yes. Because I was an intern, by the way, for, for all you medical students and residents listening, we used to work 36 hours in a row. It was miserable. You're not missing anything. <laughs> the other thing, if I really need to do something, nasal spray with neosinephrine will help me symptomatically for one or two days. So, for example, if I have to fly, uh, I'll use it to allow me to fly and not suffer. Just easy symptom things for a very short amount of time to allow me to proceed with my daily life. The topical decongestants, usually the kind of they're limited to three days, five days at the most. Um, and there's the concern, this rhinitis medicamentosa, where you can get like a rebound effect if you use them too long. And th- yeah, those are, I think they have an awful taste, uh, especially like the, I know the oxymetazoline or it's branded as Afrin. That one has a horrible taste. I've, I've used that before. That's another point. I, I, I think that listeners should try these over-the-counter medications so you kind of like get a sense of the potential side effects and the efficacy. I mean, because there's a bunch of Cochrane reviews looking at all of these and there is, for the most part, it's very hard to compare different trials because they all look at different endpoints. Like some of the trials looking at like ipratropium nasal spray, they were trying to measure like the uh, the grams of nasal discharge and and how how that's affected and and then they're all using these different questionnaires so it's really hard to quantify and personally what I've the conclusion I've reached is that no one's ever gonna do studies on these because so many people are making money off by just putting these random combinations of agents and just putting it out there cough and cold I don't think there's any incentive for companies to study it and then find out it doesn't work because people are buying it already so I don't think we're going to see them so this is the evidence we have to go by the other thing Matt is that you we should remember that if we do give nasal sprays we should teach our patients how to use them correctly because I don't know if you're using that one correctly <laughs> and that's why the test yeah, that's is true so bad. wait you're supposed to snort as hard as you can when you use it right <laughs> that's a good point that's a good point uh, maybe I'll I'll link to some instructions on how to use nasal spray like a handout that it, you can have for your no, patients a lot of patients is just going down their throat they're not yeah. actually using it the right way that's just a good a point bit. <laughs> That's a good point. Well, some of the some of the just kind of random things that I had looked up 
uh, that is out there just to say, so there was echinacea uh, doesn't work. Vitamin C doesn't work for the common cold. Using humidified air. This, and this comes from an article in the John Hopkins Antibiotic Guide on Upper Respiratory Infections, which is just amazing. And it's written by Dr. John Bartlett, who I believe is at Hopkins. I think he's an infectious disease doc, but or he might just be an he internist. Is, he is an infectious disease doc. He's a graduate of University of Alabama at Birmingham, oh. and he's retired and living in Mississippi. So he must be wonderful. I sent him an email complimenting him on how helpful I found the article because he basically did a lit review as recent as like November 2016. And he just has this commentated, this bibliography with his comments about all the studies. But some of the stuff I found in his bibliography, there was uh, heated humidified air. The the thought behind that is that the, the common cold likes to grow at 33 degrees Celsius. So using this heated humidified air might kind of in, impair the growth of it. But there's really not great evidence for humidified air either. There was also, he, he cited a study from Japan, which I, I read in, and it was a uh, gargling three times a day for they, these patients, I think it was about a hundred or so in each arm and they gargled three times a day for 60 days. And uh, those patients had a, about a 40% decrease in the incidence of upper respiratory infections. So that, that one, I mean, if, if you have, right. <laughs> if you have the time to gargle and it was just plain water too. Miso oh, was that salt water? <laughs> no. I was hoping it was miso soup or something. <laughs> they, it was, it was uh, plain water versus uh, like povidine, iodine, and then uh, versus just kind of standard, like whatever the patients normally do. And then they showed that the, the difference was, uh, it was actually most beneficial just gargling with plain water. Believe it or not, most pa- patients didn't like gargling with the with the iodine. So <laughs> I don't think they could have blinded it very well because that I don't think it tasted very good. So and then zinc lozenges. This is the other one. And I don't, Alex, did you, did you do any reading on that? And what did you think? I I, I did some reading and I read uh, Dr. Bartlett's commentary with much amusement as well. Um, <laughs> and it sounded like zinc potentially could work, but you have to take it the second you start to feel sick for it really to be of benefit. And I think that that's probably the rate limiting step for that treatment, but it's, it didn't sound like it was harmful. Yeah. Just the, I, I had heard way back that zinc causes anosmia. That was with the, the nasal preparations. The nasal part. Yeah. And that part they did say, yeah. Yeah. So the zinc acetate lozenges, the they're like you have to take them Q two hours, but they are. Uh, there is some evidence that small trials. I think the the one that I saw that was beneficial was like a meta analysis of three trials, but it was only a little over a hundred patients total. So maybe maybe use them, but. One other uh, thing that I had recently read that I wanted to ask you guys what you thought was that there was just an article, an opinion piece that came out in the BMJ, I think last week or the week before about this, the old notion of completing a course of antibiotics, and maybe we should just have people complete till when they feel better. And I was curious in the context of this discussion and thinking about the way that we treat patients, um, thinking about especially pharyngitis to prevent sequelae, what you guys thought of that article or if you'd seen it. 
Uh, I actually wrote a, a long blog post on that article. Oh, I have to, <laughs> I, I, I have to keep up on your blog. <laughs> I, I called it the Goldilocks phenomenon. <laughs> you don't want to give antibiotics too long, but you don't want to give them too short. You want to give them just right. That's right. <laughs> um, I can tell you th there's one really good study of placebo versus three days versus seven days of penicillin for adult pharyngitis. And seven days trumped three days. I don't know what five days would do. I know that for pneumonia now, that if you're if you're stable at three days, you only need five days. Those studies have been done. I think the biggest thing is we need more studies of what is the proper duration. Um, it what's interesting in the sore throat study. This is by a guy named Zwart in 2000 in the British Medical Journal, and. The people at three days of penicillin were getting better, and when they stopped the penicillin, they relapsed in terms of their symptoms. So just telling the patient to stop the antibiotics when they feel better might lead to relapse. The question is, may, maybe the right answer is take the antibiotics for two more days and then stop. I don't know the right answer. It's a very interesting commentary, but potentially dangerous. I don't, I'm not going to pretend that I know enough to comment on it, but, uh, thanks. Thanks for the comments, uh, Bob and Alex. I, I learned. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're kind of like, we've talked about a lot here. I'm sure we could think of more things to talk about, but I, but at this point, I'd like to ask you both for your take home points. Alex, I'll, I'll go to you first. Do you have take home points for the audience? my take-home points are just talk to your, as always, just talk to your patient about expectations, um, both for what they can expect to getting better, but also what to expect about getting worse and the red flag signs to look for, partner with your patient and make sure that they understand why you're doing the things that you're doing. And Bob? So I really like that. Um, I think the red flags are really, really important when you're not treating the patient. But also when you're treating the patient, uh, what, to, what to look out for. The other thing that I forgot to mention about pharyngitis, and I really want to add this, is that all of these guidelines and everything I said applies to people who've been sick for one to three days. Once they've been sick longer than that, the guidelines don't, don't fit at all, and it's something else is going on, and you need to be uh, thinking a whole lot differently. Uh, the danger we have in... These guidelines and almost every guidelines, we don't define who is the patient that we're talking about. And what we're talking about here is an otherwise healthy young person who has a sore throat and it's very acute. Once you get up to week, two weeks, there's something else going on and your entire differential changes. Okay, great. Yeah, that's definitely important to put it in the context. And my, my take-home points would just be that that for these patients, there's not really great evidence for what symptomatic management you can use. So try to balance the potential harms to the patient with the agents you're choosing. And we did mention some of the agents like echinacea, vitamin C that don't have evidence that they work. So I would just avoid those altogether. And um, I'm sure Paul and Stuart will have some comments on this episode too when we, when we go to them for, for the outro, which will be recorded at a later date. Uh, that's it. Alex or Bob, do you have any asks or plug things you'd like to plug for the audience? Everybody should listen to the Curbsiders. It's great. <laughs> uh, th that's too kind. Thank you. 
<laughs> All right. Thanks, Bob and Alex. You y'all have a good day. Talk to you, you later. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye. And we're back. Guys. Uh, oh yes, yes, yes. Sorry, we're back. I'm I'm sorry you guys couldn't be there with with me and Alex and Bob to discuss upper respiratory infections, but I wanted to go to you and, and see Stuart, any any thoughts that you had on the on the episode that you wanted to highlight for the audience? Yeah, I think one of the chief points that I think is is pivotal in this specific episode is the idea of antibiotic stewardship and specifically understanding um, why you shouldn't prescribe antibiotics. Now, I, I'm not someone who's uh, what do you what do you say an antibiotic denier or pharyngitis uh, pharyngitis de- denier is that what he said <laughs> sure something like that sure yes I'm not going to say that I am but for the most part though we need to understand that that oftentimes the, the natural course for uh, URIs sinusitis uh, should we call it sinusitis uh, bronchitis generally is going to be self limited and will resolve without any significant uh, w- without any any intervention any medical intervention and like uh, uh, Dr Alex Lane was saying is that focusing on more of the symptomatic treatment should be should take up the majority of our time and helping to frame frame our patient to understand that that this is while while it can be a significant infection and the symptoms can be very troublesome it's very important to underscore that this is you know you you have no signs of a serious bacterial infection you have no signs of anything that suggests you have pneumonia you have no signs of something that suggests that you need antibiotics but I think the most interesting thing, the most useful thing that I got out of it was the scaling muscle for accessory muscle usage. <laughs> right after right after he said that, I kind of grabbed my neck. I was like, let's see. And you feel it. It's right there. You feel it. It's right there. <laughs> I, I, and the I, thing is, I, that was my favorite too, I have to say. Yeah. And when he, when he said that, I was thinking back to, the, to some of the patients that, that I've seen when I you know, said uh, no accessory muscle usage. And, and then I was thinking, my gosh. They did. That's because they he had pulling so- thirty-six hour shifts in the hospital. He learned so much more cool stuff than we did. Yeah, that's right. Is that what you're advocating for? <laughs> no. On a related okay. on a related point, though, to what you were saying there, I I, I think that we I do want to just kind of highlight for the audience when patients come in with bronchitis, mm-hmm. I tell the residents. Don't bring them back in a week. Don't bring them back in two weeks. Uh, of course, if they have red flag symptoms, they're going to come back. But tell them your cough is going to last six. It might last six weeks. It might last eight weeks. So don't mm-hmm. schedule that person back in a week or two or even within a month because they're probably still going to have the cough if they had bronchitis and they're going to be asking for something and you're going to be kind of stuck. So you got to set up that expectation up front. This cough most patients, the cough is the last thing to go. It might last six weeks. It might last eight weeks. If it lasts beyond that time, though, I want you to come back. You know, at that point, you might be thinking about chest X-ray, and we we probably should do another episode on cough at some point. But there's a whole right. algorithm there. Well, you know, since I wasn't on this one, I, I to be fair, I barely paid attention. <laughs> um, but the parts that I I drifted right. in and okay. out of. One of the things I, I actually liked was the point, Matt, that you made was that, or at least uh, a resource that you pointed out was that CDC prescription pad for viral illnesses, mm-hmm. I think is right. a really neat tool. And I love that you guys spend a lot of time addressing expectation management. I think too often we try to impress patients with our clinical acumen and they do not care. No. <laughs> um, so, you know, really, I don't think you need an antibiotic because you don't have a fever and you don't meet these criteria. No patient in the world cares about your clinical reasoning. What they want to hear <laughs> is this will not help you, so I'm not going to give it to you. Um, yeah. And I think that's enough. And you're going to feel bad for a little while. This right. will not make a difference except maybe give you diarrhea. So let's just treat the symptoms instead. And I think if you convey that information, 
you're going to be in a better place probably. Yeah. But I, I do think it's important to separate out those patients like a COPD patient from your, your typical healthy patient, those COPD patients, if there is any evidence to suggest that they have an exacerbation, you really need to consider, especially if there's any signs of bacterial infection, you really need to consider putting them on an antibiotic. And and just to round out for the expectation management, the ones that last the longest in general would be bronchitis, like I talked about, rhinosinusitis, that can linger on for several weeks up to a month. Um, it shouldn't be worsening over that whole time. That, that That's when the person's going to get into that range where the, the three cl- categories we talked about, if it lasts long enough, you might consider antibiotics. But the common cold might last up to two weeks, and pharyngitis, probably the shortest of the ones, like Dr. Centaur was saying, usually lasts up to around five days. Just keep that in mind. And then when you're when you're thinking about who might need antimicrobials, people with the flu, they they can of course get antivirals. If if people have pertussis, if they have pneumonia, if they meet criteria for with rhinosinusitis, those are the people you're going to treat. And of course, the the patients that have a centaur criteria of three or four, those patients, depending on what guidelines you're following and depending on if you test or not, you you can treat the you can treat those patients. And if you're fo- if you're following the practice that Dr. Centaur was talking about, he would treat those patients empirically. I, I think when you think about it that way, it, it's it's usually pretty easy to rule out a lot of the things that would require antibiotics and you're left with things that are just require expectation management and symptomatic care. Yeah. So I, I actually do have something to say um, on top of that. I so am shocked. I, uh, I'm sure you, I'm sure you are. I, I, it, w- one of the things that, that I do talk about oftentimes is the importance of understanding the um, long-term effects or consequences of, of steroids. And I, I, Alex was, was saying something about, you know, the, you know, not really sure about, you know, potentially using, using Flonase. One of the things that we need to keep in mind, so if you have someone with uh, psoriasis, you're not going to put them on uh, mid to high potency steroids indefinitely. You're going to give them some steroid-free days as well. And so if you're going to put someone on, on say Flonase, which is a, a mid to upper level uh, potency steroid, you need to consider putting them on a uh, either either a burst or some type of pulse tile treatment. And the standard script that I have for my patients is a five days on, two days off per week. And generally, those two days off maybe be at home or w- wherever they they are uh, going to have the lowest exposure to whatever allergens are may be predisposing them to um, what they feel is an upper respiratory infection. Or if they're going to go, let's say I'm going to go on vacation to an area that I know that I'm going to have some symptoms at, I may start with a uh, uh, high high dosage Flonase, maybe uh, two two puffs in each nostril daily, and then do that for two weeks and titrate down from that. But I'm not going to do that indefinitely because you're going to develop steroid energy, some mucosal ulcerations and septal perforation down the road if you continue to have really bad uh, mucosal ulcerations. It's something that can't be um, overstated enough, I think. Is this like the Stuart Brigham dosing regimen for for Flonase, it, or is that is that something you got from a mentor in the past or from a someone you've worked with? No, it so, so somewhat anecdotal. Um, it, it was after I worked with uh, a dermatologist friend of mine for a long period of time, and then uh, w- when I moved down to the the, the to, to Texas where I'm currently practicing, I had multiple patients who were on you know, multiple different uh, antihistamines, uh, Singular, Flonase, Astelin, um, and uh, kind of looking at the regimen, said, you know, I, I think we might be able to stop some of these medications. And my 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 biggest success was someone who was on multiple different medications. And currently, he is he is only on Flonase pulsatile uh, treatment five days weekly, two days or five five days a week and two days off, and taking nothing else for his his allergies. And he's more controlled than he's ever been in the past. 
Wow. I'll I'll have to try that. I know you've you've said that. I I did I didn't switch my patients over, but you're you're making a strong case here, Stuart. So maybe uh maybe maybe I will be trying that in the near future here. At this point, I think we can go to the outro. You didn't want to say anything about Lemire's? Did you learn anything about Lemire's this time? You guys I, mentioned Lemire's, right? Hmm. Lemire's, right? I believe he referenced uh, he referenced the previous episode where I didn't know what it was. Yeah. And uh, he's like, yeah, I think I taught you about that once, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> and do you treat that or not? That's the part I'm, I think, supportive management primarily. <laughs> and an internal jugular ligation, I think yeah. that's the standard approach, if I'm not mistaken. No. Yeah, that's right. No anticoagulation. Is that correct, Matt? Yes, thank you guys. You're welcome. <laughs> this has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you everyone so far a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Mm, yummy! You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our monthly video newsletter summarizing the key tools, tips, and tricks for your practice at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And as I mentioned in the intro, we will now be sending out show notes in a PDF format to everybody on our mailing list. So go ahead and sign up if you would like to receive that. And finally, you can send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com where you can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And follow us on our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Good night. And I remain Paul Williams. Good night. Good night, Williams. Good night. Yeah, I forgot to call you Williams today. Yeah, don't fix it in post. <laughs>